Just because individuals with dementia might be hard to communicate with, doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. Anyone, even if they can't verbally say words, can still communicate, and we still need to meet them where they're at. with Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of At Home on Air, a radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home on Air. Welcome to another episode of At Home on Air, conversations that matter in how we live the experiences of later life. Our conversation is an especially important one. It's a topic which touches many of us, how we talk about dementia and how we talk to people who are living with dementia. Our guest is Adria Thompson, founder of Be Light Care, and host is Rachel Friedman, a board member and a longtime associate of At Home with Growing Older. So thank you, Rachel, for leading this conversation with Adria. She really is an expert in the field of communication. Without further ado, Rachel and Adria, please take it away. Thank you, Susie. Hi, everybody. I'm so honored right now to introduce you to Adria Thompson. I've been following Adria's work for quite some time now. She founded Be Light Care Consulting. She offers support to family members, friends, therapists, and other medical providers who provide care to individuals with dementia. Adria is a speech language pathologist with a background in communication disorders. And she's worked one-on-one -on -one with hundreds, probably thousands of individuals inside and outside of long-term care facilities, providing training and consultation. And she posts an amazing amount of daily content on Instagram, offering tips, often acting out difficult scenarios and reviewing intelligent tools and clothes and products. I was really moved by Adria's work because of the way she normalizes the experience of caring for and being with people with memory loss and for the ways that she brings not just knowledge, but creativity and humor and a deep well of compassion to everyday experiences and challenges. Thank you for being here, Adria. Thank you, Susie and Rachel, for having me. I'm so excited to talk about communication. It's my most passionate conversation. Well, good, because we have lots of questions. Before we get started, I thought it would be a good idea to clarify what we mean when we talk about dementia, since it's such a broad term and is often misunderstood. For the purposes of this conversation moving forward, what do we mean by dementia? To put it simply, dementia is an umbrella term for changes in cognition, communication, problem solving, any kind of thinking skills. This usually happens at the end of life or as someone is older, but it can happen in the middle of life as well. If dementia is the umbrella term, there are specific diagnoses that fall under that category. And the most common type of dementia is Alzheimer's disease. Anywhere from 60 to 80% of all people diagnosed with dementia 
have the Alzheimer's specific diagnosis. Other types of dementia include Lewy body dementia, vascular dementia, frontotemporal dementia, Huntington's disease, Korsakoff syndrome, and the list goes on and on and on. There are many, many types of dementia. Thank you for explaining that. I would add the changes interfere with independence and everyday activities, and that's where your tips and wisdom come in. As a speech pathologist and a young woman who's starting a career, what drew you to focus on dementia and to work with people on this end of the age spectrum? I have always been really passionate about helping people, advocating for people who are kind of the underdogs, where people don't expect them to have a lot of capability. In undergrad and even in grad school, I thought that that was going to present as me working with children with disabilities. I was really always drawn to children with the most severe difficulties and behaviors. Quickly found out after graduating when I started working at a nursing home that it was not necessarily children. It wasn't an age that I was drawn to. It was the challenge and it was the ability to advocate successfully for someone help someone participate in a task that other people didn't expect them to be able to do. It landed me specializing with individuals with dementia. And several years later, my own grandmother was diagnosed with dementia. And so it really kind of came full circle for me. I saw it from a professional and now a personal point of view. Thank you. And does the name Be Light mean something to you? It definitely does. So Be Light Care came about because I was working in long-term care for eight years in nursing homes, assisted living, the memory care communities. I had learned so much about dementia and I'd worked so much with individuals with dementia. I knew that I had these tips and tricks and education that makes a difference in the type of care they are receiving in my own little small community. And I just wanted to spread the knowledge to the rest of the world. When thinking about what I was going to create my own business, I wanted to bring education, but also a feeling of hope. What really drew me to this name is that light has two different meanings. Light means to illuminate. So to bring a light, you know, on a dark subject, things that people don't really know a lot about, illuminate the topic of dementia, but then also light in the sense of it lifting a burden, a lightness, making things not seem so heavy. That's what I've been so passionate about, bringing light in both ways. And I think that my content that I'm providing on Instagram and other social media platforms is doing that. That's the kind of feedback I'm getting, which is perfect. I definitely personally felt that when I looked at your content and I felt like you were bringing a lot of lightness and levity to a really difficult, scary topic. Why do we need to bring attention to this topic? What are we trying to overcome? Or in other words, what do you want to change about this field of dementia care? I think the idea of dementia and the topic of dementia is only known to the people who personally experience it close by. You don't think about or learn about or care about dementia until someone you love is dealing with it. And so I think the biggest problem is that it's so much kept in the dark. There's so much unknown. And the only things that we do think about when we think about dementia are things that we see in media, on TV, in movies. And that is usually like the notebook where it's this amazing love story. And then all of a sudden she forgets him and gets aggressive. It's a great storyline, but the reality is it's far more complicated than that. 
A lot of times when we talk about people with dementia, we also say phrases like a dementia patient, a dementia sufferer, someone who suffers with dementia. And that is a problem. We do not have to suffer when we get dementia. There's still so much light, so much life to still be had, so much joy that can still happen. And also, dementia is nothing to be ashamed of. It's not something we have to hide away. It is not going away, unfortunately, anytime soon. We have to be able to learn to live with people with dementia and to be respectful of their caregivers and be helpful to their caregivers for sure. Yeah, I feel like if we don't personally know someone who has some form of dementia, we will soon. Even if it doesn't affect us personally in our family, just being a person in community, we need to know what it means and how to communicate. Yeah, for sure. So how does the way that you talk about dementia challenge the norm? How do you push back on that through your content? My content is very educational. Instagram is my main platform, but all my content is also on TikTok. And I did that strategically because that's where the young people are. In my mind, the aides that I was working with at long-term care were always on their phones and on TikTok. And if they weren't going to listen to my education in the hallways and at the nurse's station, I wanted to pop up on their phone and tell them. And so that's really kind of where it started. I want anyone, young or old, to be able to recognize dementia, to see it, to understand that it's not scary, that it's not just for old people, that it's not just for institutionalized people. Basically, just me having a platform on social media challenges how we think about dementia because it's for younger people on TikTok, on Instagram. I have so many caregivers of all ages, and it's just a great way to support what they're going through. And they can watch one of my videos and say, oh my gosh, I did not know that that was a systemic problem with people with dementia. I thought that was just my dad. I had no idea other people had this problem too. In the comments, there's so much support of caregivers as well of like, oh, I had that problem with my dad and this is what I did. And they're all learning together. So the very presence on social media is challenging how we think about and how we talk about dementia. In the actual content that I provide, I have a lot of rules for myself. Sometimes my husband helps me to create some of these videos when I need another person. If we are standing in for the person with dementia, we play it super neutral. I don't want to have content that dramatizes what someone with dementia is like. I don't want to have a lot of silliness. I don't want to show someone being mean or someone being confused. I don't want to show any depictions of someone with dementia in any negative light or any kind of silly light because that happens far too often. All of my content is about the caregiver. How is the caregiver acting? How are they providing care? Also, I think it's really important for me to show that there's so much more to know. Dementia is not just like a death sentence. We have so many more things to do. We got to keep moving forward and we have to keep learning. And I think that really challenges the expectation that, oh, your mom has dementia. I think that we need to put her on hospice. You need to make your final plans. We are at the end here. Like, no, we still got to brush our teeth. We still have to figure out how to put on our clothes. And we need to get out and travel some and figure out where we're going to sit them at the airport. Because those are all things that we need to still be doing. And by talking about it in those ways, you're reducing not just misconception, but people's own fears. And by reducing fear, we can talk about it more and bring it out of the shadow 
And also it, you know, makes me realize that most of what we hear about dementia and Alzheimer's disease is looking for a cure. We hear very little about care. Yeah. It's either, oh, this is it. Get your affairs in order. Or like, what medication do we need? How are we going to fight this? What are we going to do? And in the meantime, we still have to care for them. In the meantime, there's a lot of living to be had. Mm -hmm. I love that your content also draws in younger generations and sees that it can also make care seem creative and cool and hip, which is also a new twist. I want to draw younger people to the field. We need more carers. Too many times in the places that I've worked, the individuals who are caring for people with dementia are very much, I don't know any way better to say this, but they're doing the job because it pays more. It pays more to take care of people with dementia than neurotypical older people. If you work for a memory care facility, you make more than if you work in a normal assisted living. That's just the truth and they deserve it because they have different jobs. But we don't need people in those positions who just want to make more money. We need people in those positions who seek that out because they want to care for people with dementia. And so we need people who are teenagers, 20-something, to choose to get into the field of dementia, Mm -hmm. especially if we're ever going to have a cure. Even if we find a cure today, it's not ending today. There's still so much more that we need to do. I want to get young people in the field. That's a huge goal of mine. Much of what you do in your content is you help people communicate with individuals who have dementia and your content covers the gamut. Like I keep wondering how you're going to come up with new things to talk about (laughs) from, you know, how to approach conversations to helping people get in and out of the car to lessening the stress of brushing teeth and showering, how to respond to someone who's not making sense or even When someone can't think of a word, how do you respond? I want our audience to have a sense of what some of those concrete tips are. Do you have some favorites in your back pocket that you can share with us about communication? Yeah. I want to start by saying just because individuals with dementia might be hard to communicate with doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. So anyone, even if they can't verbally say words, can still communicate and we still need to meet them where they're at. So the thing about communication is it's a spectrum. Individuals with dementia are on a spectrum. There are stages of dementia, but in general, it's mild, moderate, severe. Individuals in the mild stages of dementia will need communication strategies, such as just getting their eye contact when you come into a room. Before you speak to them, make sure that they're paying attention to you. And these people might just be slightly forgetful. A very concrete example is using fewer pronouns. So for example, we might be telling a story. Oh, have you talked to Karen? She was telling me the other day about her daughter and she is going to Harvard in the spring. Well, for someone who has short-term memory loss, as the conversation goes along, they might not remember who she and her are referring to anymore. And so instead of saying she and her, it, that, this, these kind of pronouns, we need to start thinking about saying who we're actually referring to. Have you seen Karen lately? I was talking to Karen the other day at Walmart and Karen was telling me about her daughter, Cindy. Cindy is going to Harvard. Just that change, that slight change in how we tell a story can help someone in the very mild stages of dementia to follow along a lot better without saying, wait, who, who are you talking about? So many people won't ask that question, for example, because they don't want to disrupt or be embarrassed that they don't know. Then if we move into the moderate stages of dementia, 
A good tip here, this might be someone who can still verbally express themselves to some degree, but they're not going to be super specific. So in this stage, we don't need to be saying, remember, and we also don't need to be asking them questions that have to do with events. So what did you do today? What are you going to do tomorrow? Did you go to the activity? Well, what did you do at the activity? Instead, we can start asking questions that have to do with the actual moment we're in right now. So when we visit someone with dementia in the moderate stages, we need to think about the five senses. So things like what they see right now. Oh, will you look at that? That is a beautiful wreath on her door. We talk about smells. What is that? It smells so good in here. Does that remind you of something? Oh, that smell reminds me of the soap that you used to have right beside your sink growing up. Talk about feel. Oh, can you feel this new jacket I got? Isn't it so soft? Do you like how that feels? And so just asking questions about the senses in the moment and then also how they feel about things. So we can be wrong when it comes to answering questions about events. If I said, what did you have for breakfast? And you told me eggs when you really had toast, you're wrong. But if I said, did you enjoy breakfast this morning? And you said, yes, I don't know if you're wrong or not. So asking questions more about how they feel and how they experience something is what you should do in the moderate stages. In the most severe stages, that's where we really get into people who don't really make sense. Either they're saying real words and it's not a true story, like, oh, I went down to Gatlinburg this morning with my Sunday school class, when you know they've been sitting in their room all day, or they actually say things that are not words. So for intent. Right. So if either happens, what you can do is reflect back their energy. So when you have no idea what they're saying, but someone is going like this, what we would need to say is you are kidding me. I had no idea. If they're telling a story and they're saying, I went to Gatlinburg this morning and we had French toast with my Sunday school class. You can say, did you really? I had no idea. So you can say the same words, but the tone can just match theirs. That is communication that allows them to feel heard. We're not going to fix their memory. We're not going to fix their communication, but we're going to, in that moment, connect. And that's what's most important. So those are my favorite communication strategies. Your examples reminded me that so many of your posts are about increasing someone's sense of purpose. and preserving dignity. There was one that I looked at today about how to approach someone in a way that you're not standing over them. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? And then a little bit about how you preserve a sense of purpose or help people increase a sense of purpose when their abilities and capabilities are so limited. I think in order to talk about approach, we always have to put ourselves in their shoes and also understand the changes that happen with dementia. So just one example is as people progress through dementia, their vision changes. And it's not vision as far as like blurriness, it's perspective. They lose peripheral vision on the sides and top to bottom. So it's almost as though they're wearing goggles. So knowing that, that should change everything about how we approach someone. Because if we are used to knocking on the door far on the right side of them, or to make it worse on the left side of them, if they're right side dominant, we always are weaker on our less dominant side as far as our attention and not just physical capabilities. So we're knocking on the door, we're standing over them as they're sitting in a wheelchair. That's not helpful. 
that doesn't draw your attention. That's not eyeballs looking at you. So we can kind of get down on their level, connect with them for a second, smile, show them the energy that you want them to understand. Introduce yourself, even though you are the primary caregiver, you see them every day. They have short-term memory loss. They don't know that. What we need to do is just really introduce yourself. Hi, it's Adria. I'm so excited to see you taking those beats to allow them to process. All of those things make them feel safe. And that is what our biggest role is as caregivers, is to make someone feel safe because that's when they can function the best. If we think about ourselves, if we feel stressed, we feel threatened, or there's chaos going on around us, then we don't feel at ease and we don't function as well. Our attention isn't as good. And so it's all about not kicking in a fight or flight response, making them feel safe. You get far more compliance. They will agree to things much more often. And this is also going to give them a sense of purpose and of meaning in their environment when they feel a connection with someone. One way to allow someone to feel purpose is to ask them to help you. People have different personalities, but largely people are always willing to help. And you can say, I just really need your help if they're someone who's just naturally giving, or if they're a naturally prideful person, you can say, I need some help and you're the only person that I know that can help me. But we can tailor it to however they need. And we might actually be just trying to get them to go into the bathroom to use the toilet. But if we can say, I need your help. I can't turn the faucet off. I can't figure this out. I need you to help me with something. That simple phrase can add purpose to every task. We just need to build a connection, provide safety, and then make them feel like they are the only person in that moment that can really meet your need. Listening to what you're saying, I can only imagine all the reasons why living in care facilities make these things very difficult when you're mm -hmm. one of many, many people in a memory care facility. Absolutely. Thank you, Adria. I wish we lived in a world where this was an education that everybody got you know, that my children got in high school. So thank you for enlightening us. You are listening to At Home On Air. We are now switching to questions by participating audience members in this recorded live episode. If you want a chance to ask your question, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org and register for the next live episode. This is an amazing opportunity to really have you here to answer questions directly. Adria, so I'm just going to jump in. What are some tips when going to doctor's appointment with your loved ones who has dementia? Some doctors don't seem sensitive or knowledgeable on this. Yeah, that's a great question. I recently spoke with a neurologist on my Instagram page and asked from a doctor's point of view, especially a neurologist, because that's a lot of times the hardest kind of doctor appointments, what is a good tip from the insider's perspective? And the best advice I can give, first of all, is to record the symptoms that you're experiencing, the things that you're concerned about in writing making a list and having dates and a timeline, if it is memory that you're concerned about, or if it's even just other medical conditions, have it in writing, but very simple. 
they're not going to have time to read long narratives, but being able to provide a doctor with that before they walk into the room will allow them a little bit more context to what you might be coming there for. And also I would, if we're having a hard time getting someone to agree to go to a doctor, think about what is motivating to them in general. So for example, if someone is a very frugal person, they love saving money, you can say, hey, we need to go to the doctor this week because you need to have a checkup. Your insurance requires you to have a checkup every six months. And I'm afraid if we don't do these checkups, they might increase the price of your insurance. So let's go and make sure we keep that good deal we have with insurance. We don't have to give the reason of you have memory problems. We have to go. We need help. You have to be diagnosed with something. Make it like, oh, I am so aggravated about this too, but we are just being made to do this. That often can help. Julie Petruski asks, I'm caring for my dear friend with moderate dementia. She refused to leave her home to go to an appointment with a neurologist. We did a makeup appointment at her house using FaceTime on my iPad. My friend loved being able to see her doctor on the screen. We will do future appointments in the same way when possible. That is one benefit from COVID, if we can ever say that there is one, is that things are so much more virtual now. And there are a lot of options for virtual visits like that. And that is a great alternative if someone can't get their loved one to a physical doctor. That's a great point. Another question is from a family caregiver. We know that family caregivers are the prime caregivers also for people living with dementia. And Rita Baruch says, I'm a family caregiver to my 99-year-old mom, Betty, who has mild decline. When she forgets words, is the better to give her time to try to recall other strategies that can help her maintain her abilities? That's a great question. So the name of what it's called when you can't think of a word is called anomia. And so individuals who have dementia, especially in the early stages, will experience anomia. If they can't think of a word, the best thing you can do is to ask them, what do you want me to do when this happens? Because everyone is different. So you might say, mom, sometimes when you forget a word, what would you like me to do? Would you like me to wait? and allow you to think of it? Or if I know what you're talking about, do you want me to fill in the blank? That can be an uncomfortable conversation to have sometimes, but it is gonna be extremely important and it's gonna show them that you love them and you care and you want to help them. And it might matter based on the context, like, oh, if we're at church, if I can't think of something, I need you to hurry and replace it for me because it might be embarrassing. But if I'm at home, give me a second. And if they can't, you know, verbally, tell you that asking will just show that respect. But yes, there is something you can do to help maintain her abilities. And that is to encourage her to describe it. I used this example on my page not too long ago, but medications are often words that people forget, like acetaminophen, for example. So if she's trying to think of that word, you can say, hey, describe it to me. Even if you know what she's talking about, you can describe how it looks where it's usually located, the purpose of it, what you use it for, what it reminds you of. It's like Advil. It's the little red pill. And we usually always keep it on the top shelf. Allowing to describe something often will give them the time and the mental flexibility to all of a sudden come up with it on their own. But even if not, we're thinking of lots of words in replacement of that. That strategy is called circumlocution. 
where we travel all the way around the word until we find it. Laura Mendoza asks, are there any tips for soothing excessive fear? Yeah, that's going to be so individualized. Fear, anxiety, those things are going to be based on what they're afraid of. And often we can't figure it out, but we can trial. That's what we call it in therapy. We can trial a lot of interventions, a lot of options. One of the things we can do is just sitting down and talking with them, getting on their eye level, eye contact, asking them questions. What are you scared of? Tell me what you're afraid of. But then also we can provide some sensory stimulation that especially people in the more severe stages of dementia might really respond well to, like a nice shoulder massage. That's deep pressure, especially on joints like shoulders, even on their arms. Things like a weighted blanket can provide some sensory stimulation to allow them to settle down. It could be that they're experiencing visual hallucinations, which is absolutely something you need to talk to your doctor about if they seem to be experiencing or seeing things in their environment that aren't there. So it really depends on what they're afraid of. But if you just really can't figure it out, my best advice is to try, 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 try again. And if you find something that seems to take the edge off, then explore that as much as possible. Victoria Roberts asks, how do people with dementia cope with caregivers or other visitors wearing masks? I'd say that's very individualized as well, but broadly I can say that masks are not familiar. So when individuals with dementia experience memory loss, it's typically short-term memory loss. It's things that happen recently. And so long-term memory is preserved the longest. And so masks are unfamiliar. They didn't grow up seeing a mask. None of us did. This is going to be an hour long-term memory as we age because this pandemic has changed everything. But first of all, it can be very unfamiliar. So it can be scary just visually, but also auditorily, comprehension-wise, it can be very difficult to understand people you know, hearing loss is very common for anyone as they age. There is a level of changes that happen with hearing. And so taking away the visual of someone's mouth decreases someone's comprehension a lot. There's a lot of different avenues that we can kind of go down in that conversation. But once again, what we need to do is make sure they feel safe. We still can communicate a lot with our bodies and with our eyes, even if we have to wear a mask. And there's options like plastic masks that can show your mouth, but with your energy, with your body language, still just making them feel safe is the most important thing. Yeah. I was just thinking, you know, how difficult this is for so many generations to don't see the whole face, which is sort of really the emotional expression of who we are. For sure. Yeah. James Murakami asks, what are your thoughts on alternative intergenerational living environments for people living with dementia? I've seen a lot of research lately that shows that there's a lot of benefits to those mixed environments for individuals that are aging and then also for children or college age, whatever age we're talking about. I think the most important thing when we're talking about people with dementia in any living situation is that we want the people around them to be educated about their needs. And so as long as that is happening, I'm down for it. Complete support of that. And I think it really would also provide so many people experiences of being around people with dementia that aren't scary, that would help benefit them throughout their entire life. 
patients and being around people with dementia, I mean, that's going to translate to anyone in your life. Having patients for your sibling when they're having a rough day with your children when they're having a meltdown. It absolutely generalizes. Yeah, it reminds me of a conversation we actually had about two years ago with an experiment. I think it's in Portland with a Montessori school, which included in their programming where Montessori trained kids visited people living with dementia. And there were some really great insights in that conversation too. One of them was just the quality of attention given mm-hmm. to people and that actually children were pretty good at this because That's- they did not judge. Another question by Leslie Cohen, Adria. Does your grandmother live at home with dementia or in the memory care facility and why? My grandmother lives in just a traditional skilled nursing facility or nursing home, and she's lived there for two years. She lived at home for three years before that, and she's there because that is what's best for her. She is getting great care at the nursing home. My family was unable to provide her 24-7 supervision that she needed. When she was living at home before she went to the nursing home, she was very much isolated living with a caregiver that would come about 12 hours a day. And she began to lose her physical abilities and her independence very quickly. She was staying in one room doing the same thing over and over again every day. Her cognition seemed to just take a nosedive. She had got a urinary tract infection pretty bad, had to go to the hospital, went to a nursing home for rehab, and she flourished there. She is a very social person. She's a very nosy person, and she loves having people to spy on all day long and listen to the gossip in the hallways. She is in the moderate stages of dementia now, and when they take her to activities, she thinks that she has gone on vacation. She's come back and has lots of stories. So she is not suffering with dementia. She has so much joy in her life and being where she is, is best for her primary caregivers, her children, and also for herself. It's been a perfect situation. I'm just curious as a follow-up question, and she was willing and on board with moving to a nursing home. This is often an issue with people who already have memory impairment. The short answer is no, she was not okay with it. She went there for rehabilitation, so that was the purpose originally, was for her to get therapy, get stronger, and come back home. We very quickly realized that she wasn't going to be able to cognitively. She was getting up all hours of the night, and it was a really dangerous situation. And so when she first was there, she asked to go home a lot. Once we explored that a little further, the home she was referring to was the home that she grew up in when she was little. It wasn't even that she wanted to go home to the last place she lived. That's really where we started realizing, okay, like it's not necessarily that she wants to be in her place by herself. It's just that she wants to be somewhere familiar. It took about six weeks to two months for being there where that place started feeling familiar enough and she settled in. Thank you. I just wanted to comment that I think it's so important that you're bringing up the joy in your grandmother's life because we often don't read situations that way. We might think because she's not doing the same things she used to do there's no meaning in her life. And actually you're describing a person who has a lot of meaning and joy in their life. That's not the Mm -hmm. common narrative. Why is it important for people to maintain independence? You might think, oh, like that's long gone. One part of this is 
the whole, if you don't use it, you lose it kind of thing. As soon as we start taking people's independence away, and the way we do that is by doing things for them, then they will decline quicker. And that's been proven that if we do all of the things, let's just say even for like brushing their teeth, if they struggle simply just with getting toothpaste on a toothbrush, and we take that opportunity to say, oh, well, they can't brush their teeth anymore, so I'll do it, and you physically brush their teeth for them, the more we do that, then the less they're going to be able to do it for themselves. But more than that, if we keep people independent, we also <laughs> will keep them more compliant. Compliant is a weird word. We use it in therapy a lot, but basically it just means that they're agreeable to helping and like participating. Brushing your teeth, for example, a lot of times people will resist brushing their teeth. They will push it away. And it's because someone else is trying to do it to them. I would do that too. If someone is putting up a drink to my mouth, I would move away from it. But if instead of doing it for them, we help them do it themselves, we put the brush in their hands, we put the toothpaste in their other hand, we assist them with it, and they're brushing their own teeth, they're going to be far more agreeable to completing that task than if we were to just do it for them. The biggest example of this is in the shower. So if we are just scrubbing people's body head to toe in a very vulnerable state and in very sensitive areas, absolutely they're going to resist. But if instead we take that extra time to assist them in doing it to themselves, they're going to be far more agreeable and we're not going to see the struggle often that we see when we're doing it to them. So simply put, we have to get some of these tasks done. We have to go to the bathroom. We have to take a shower. We have to eat. And if we're just bulldozing them and doing it for them and we find that it's a struggle, maybe we need to take a step back. Just wondering about one word you used here, which was time. In our heads, we think that we're saving so much time by doing these things ourselves when really the consequence of getting them all riled up and upset and having to deal with the aftermath of the anxiety of the frustration of the agitation after the task is done, that is where the time is spent. So if instead we put that time in the front end and we just give them time to build rapport, to do that eye contact, to be a likable person, make them like you, for goodness sake, before you start taking off their clothes, the time that we take at the beginning will save us so much of that frustration and anxiety that they experience after. Yeah, thank you for clarifying this. Seems a really important point. So Val says, it's tough for my friend to be labeled Alzheimer's when that can only be diagnosed with autopsy. The self-fulfilling prophecy issue arises. It is true mm -hmm. that Alzheimer's cannot be confirmed 100% until autopsy. However, research is showing us that neurologists, doctors are correctly and accurately diagnosing Alzheimer's from clinical symptoms and what they see in how they're behaving with pretty great accuracy. And so just because we can't confirm it until we see the brain and, you know, we dissect it at autopsy, that doesn't mean that we can't still know that they likely have it. And also a lot of what we're doing when we diagnose dementia is actually ruling out things that are reversible. So when someone comes to the doctor and they have cognitive changes, we're going to do blood work to make sure it's not an infection. We're going to do MRIs or CT scans of the brain to make sure there's not a brain tumor or there's not a stroke that has happened. A lot of this testing is not necessarily to confirm dementia, but it's to rule out all the other things that we can actually treat. Question from 
Victoria, do you see benefits with Rx? Rx is for anxiety or agitation versus caregiver sensitivity. I don't really talk about like specific medications or give any kind of recommendations for medications. I am not a pharmacist. I am not a doctor. Any kind of questions about anxiety, about hallucinations, about sleep medicines, all of those things, absolutely bring that to your doctor and ask about your specific situation because it affects so many people so differently. That makes total sense. And Jesse asks, a lot of people with dementia seem to get UTIs. Any way to prevent this? Yeah, UTIs are most common when people are incontinent. And incontinence happens with dementia. Dementia can cause it, usually in the moderate and severe stages of dementia. And so UTIs most commonly happen when there's been fecal incontinence. Maybe it sits in a brief, but it basically transfers and it gets into the urinary tract. The best way to prevent this, if that is the issue, is just constant changes, changing incontinence products, being clean. But also some people are just really prone to UTIs. When people get UTIs frequently, it could be that they never cleared the last urinary tract infection. So if someone has a urinary tract infection and they're being treated with antibiotics, it's extremely important at the end of that round of antibiotics for them to have their urine tested again to make sure that it's actually been treated and it's gone. So that is another good tip. Yes. And can you say briefly how people can ask you questions? Yeah. I saw also someone ask like exactly what platforms I have. So you can search Be Light Care on Instagram, TikTok, or Facebook. All of my content is pretty much the same on every platform. And so you can use any of those platforms to see my videos and see my posts. Additionally, the best way to contact me would be my email. So info at belightcare.com. I also have my direct messages open on Instagram that you can send me a message. I will say that I answer my Instagram messages about once a week. So if you don't hear from me like immediately, don't worry. Pretty much every question we talked about, I have videos about on my platforms. If you go to my Instagram, I have lots of story highlights. They're basically just categories. So there's categories about toileting, about showering, about oral care, about behaviors, about communication. You can just click on those categories and you'll see all the videos that I've made about that topic. So I really recommend that that's the first thing you go to if you have questions, just to see if I've already addressed it. And you don't have to have Instagram to be able to see my platform. Everything's public. So it is Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. And you can email me at info at belightcare.com. I also do consultations one-on-one. -on -one. That can be found at my website, belightcare.com. You can just look at my calendar and see when I'm available. Thank you, Adria. And before we conclude, is there any question you would like to ask yourself, which we haven't asked you? Yeah, I saw some questions just about how do I use social media for dementia and things like that. And then I know that there are a lot of caregivers who might not be on social media. I'm working on another platform. I've had several meetings this week about almost having like a Netflix style page or an app where you can go and find all of my content by searching for things. So just be in the loop. Check out my website. I have a newsletter you can also subscribe to to kind of see what's going on. I just want you guys to know 
that this is still pretty new for me. I've just been doing this a year. So I am growing tremendously, which I'm super, super thankful for, but just have some patience with me as I try to, you know, meet everyone's needs. It is a huge honor to be such a support system for caregivers, both professionally and personally. And it's my favorite thing in the world to do. So I am thankful. Thank you, Adria, so much. And Rachel, thank you so much for this inspiring conversation about creativity and respect and delight and so much more. Our next conversation is on February 16 with Susan Moon. She's a Zen practitioner and author who offers another fresh perspective on her own aging experience. We always try to bring somewhat different perspectives to this at home on air conversations. So thank you all. Thank you, Adria. The information that you're providing is really precious and rare. Thank you for helping us feel less alone and less afraid of this topic. It's an honor. Thank you guys for having me. This was a lot of fun. This episode of At Home On Air was produced by the At Home With Growing Older team. We could not host these conversations without the generosity of our marvelous and passionate guests and hosts. Thank you for sharing your personal and professional insights. Thank you to our live audience for your thoughtful contributions. To subscribe to this podcast and for more information, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, the jewel of San Francisco's assisted living and memory care communities, and the Walnut Foundation, a San Francisco family foundation. We would also like to thank, for their encouragement and inspiration, Encore.org, which works to bridge the intergenerational divide, and the Op-Ed Project, whose mission is to change who writes history. At Home With Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode.